1: My name is Francis Tolliver. I come from Liverpool. Two years ago, the war was waiting for me after
2: school. To You're listening to Nakedly Try. Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 160 is John McCutcheon. John has released 45 albums since 1975, starting with traditional folk music... A lot of instrumental music. He's fluent on guitar, banjo, violin, dulcimer, and more, but quickly added his own songs to the repertoire. You're right now listening to Christmas in the Trenches from his 1984 album Winter Solstice. Around that time, he also started creating children's music and has garnered six Grammy nominations for several albums of that sort. Today, we're going to be discussing Atonement from his brand-new album Bucket List, Soup from one of the children's albums, John McCutcheon's Four Seasons Winter Songs from 1995, Looking back to Water from Another Time from Gonna Rise Again, 1987. And we'll conclude by listening to The Night John Prine Died from Cabin Fever, Songs from Quarantine, 2020. For more information, check out his website and, can you believe this URL, folkmusic.com. For more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to support what I do here and get access to my detailed episode notes, ad free audio, and often getting episodes early, then sign up at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little bit of Christmas in the Trenches from Winter Solstice 1984. Named one of the 100 essential folk songs by NPR, <laughs> right under John Prine's Angel from Montgomery. Sorry, you didn't beat that. Damn. But this was a little outlier because I was thinking most of the rest of that album and a lot of your previous couple albums, it's you know a good amount of someone who plays Hammer Dulcimer. That's sort of the, the shtick. Well, and a lot
1: of traditional stuff. And yes. Playing lots of different instruments. But.
2: Which I thought that in the Trenches was a great way to actually prepare for the stuff that we're going to talk about, because it is all storytelling. Mm. Can you say a little about that transition from, you know, you're doing a lot of traditional folk things to you're writing this song with a very, very clear story, which is clearly, you know, a through line to what you do today.
1: I think it's all a, a product of trying to learn how to write. I started writing songs as soon as I started playing guitar. And I wrote lots and lots of really bad songs. It was clarified to me how mediocre or even bad they were by trying to introduce them in in the middle of a performance alongside an old traditional song, because that was my focus. At age 20, I went and I started hitchhiking around the Appalachian South trying to learn how to play the banjo the way I heard people who had been playing the banjo all their life played. And that was when I learned to play the fiddle and the auto harp and the mountain dulcimer and eventually the hammer dulcimer and all this kind of stuff. And at that point in my life, I was a student and there was no no in my vocabulary. So if I was learning to play the banjo, I was inevitably going to be around fiddle players. And I eventually ended up being around meager numbers of hammer dulcimer players there were in the world at that time. But it was clear to me that the songs I was writing were not good. And I thought, well, I'm going to learn how to write songs the same way I'm learning to play the banjo. I'm going to listen to those people who do it well. And I especially want to listen to those people who came out of a traditional culture. And so I started listening to people like Hazel Dickens and people like Gene Ritchie, and not strictly from a traditional community, Utah Phillips who seemed to understand how to write in that style. And one of the things when I looked at traditional songs, what was it that made them compelling and made them survive a gauntlet that most contemporary songs would never have survived? And a lot of it was the stories that they told. This was our entertainment. This was our television. This was our radio. Before any of those things existed, how did we find out who we were? When we were still living in caves, people would say, see these stars up there in the heavens? This is telling our great cosmic story. And that has never really changed that much. And so I guess what I learned from paying attention to the architecture and the inner workings of traditional songs was the story was important. It was compelling. And it was a way to get an idea across And then I also started getting invited to the National Storytelling Festival, and I was around other, what I would call, workers of the word, and was really in heaven seeing the way that people just luxuriated in language and in story. And I ended up marrying one of those storytellers, in fact. Well, let's get quickly to,
2: you know, so we've got 40-plus albums later, Ah. (laughs) Bucket List, the current collection of... Very story-based songs for the most part. Atonement was the one you picked, particularly, like Christmas in the Trenches, attuned to a time, to, you know, Mm -hmm. this is not a specific historical event, but like this is the kind of stuff that is happening now, should be happening now. Can you say a little about your approach with this song just for a second before we hear it, and then we'll talk more in detail.
1: This was a a completely accidental song in much the same way that Christmas in the Trenches was. I mean, I wrote Christmas in the Trenches because I was killing time in a backstage dressing room in Birmingham, Alabama, and got into a sort of story swap with a janitor who happened into the room. And the final thing she told me before I had to go out on stage was the story of the 1914 Christmas Truce. I had not thought about writing that story. It just was presented to me. All the songs on bucket list, like the album previous to that cabin fever are products of the pandemic. You know, I had lots of time now that I wasn't getting on an airplane every weekend and I wasn't filling up my time with concerts and sound checks and post show meet and greets and stuff like that. I was just home all the time. And so I wrote and it became a kind of momentum My wife, who is also a writer, and I have a little cabin up in the North Georgia mountains, and it's where we both go to write. And so I was spending a lot of time there, and I remember the day I wrote Atonement. I was not expecting to write this story. It had not been something that was on, pardon the pun, my songwriting bucket list to write a song about. But I went out and I sat on the front porch, as I usually do, looking out at miles and miles of trees. And I thought, well, what am I gonna write about today? And nothing was coming, and then a truck drove by on the other side of the cabin, which is, we have a little road there, and I heard gravel crackling. And I thought, okay, tires crackle in the gravel as I pull up to the place. And then it all kinda tumbled out. Did I write it thinking, well, this is something for our time? That wasn't my intention, I just wrote. And I'm really used to, you know, especially When you're in the zone, trusting where it's going, even though you don't know, looking back on it, it's an important story because we tend to, referencing one of the other songs in the album, we we tend to other people. We define them with caricatures based on what they're wearing, what language they use, who they voted for, what their bumper stickers say, and everybody does it left, right, middle, everybody does it. And it occurred to me, sort of referencing back the story of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader who had a revelation and became an abolitionist and ended up being an Anglican preacher and wrote songs. Amazing Grace being, of course, the most famous. I like to say it's his Christmas in the trenches. Mm -hmm. But he was able to do that because his community forgave him and allowed him to repent, allowed him to atone, as it were. We are surrounded with stories of white supremacy and, and what happens when somebody repents the way we wish they would. Do we allow them to do that? And I think a lot of us probably would not to our shame and loss. So I thought that this was a story of redemption for the characters involved and potential redemption for the listener. Tires crack along the gravel as I pull up to the place, take a breath, and step out. To meet history face to face Stone chimneys all that's standing The rest had gone to ground Ain't been back here since the night I burned the damn place down Oh, I was young and stupid Sure and hard back then The only lens I looked through Was the color of my skin Everything they taught me, everything I heard, led me on a one-way track to what at last occurred. Didn't know no better. I was jobless and unschooled. Found a place to put my anger. I was ready to be fooled. Guided by my grievance, force-fed my demands. They put hatred in my heart And it got into my hands Now 25 years later I'm standing amidst the truth Paying for the crimes That I committed in my youth Prison would not be enough To wash my sins away The ashes of my actions Around me here today, gravel crackles once again, truck stops next to mine, the face behind the wheel is etched by the patient hand of time. I haven't seen him since that night I set his world aflame Ran his family from this place I didn't even know his name I let him speak his peace, Because I knew he had the right All we both carried Since that hateful night The house he built with his own hands Gone without a thought Brought no satisfaction When he heard That I'd been caught I know what I'd taken Was more than just a home I've been struggling For years Finding some way to atone I hope that maybe Something good Somehow had survived He finished Just about the time the building
2: So right from the beginning of this, can you say a little about the sort of persona that you have picked for this? The for you know, the, you're getting a little Southern with it, you know, that's the character.
1: Well, it's where I've lived for 50 years, you know.
2: But was there a specific like country singer voice, you know, my country music literacy is raising its head, illiteracy is raising its head here, <laughs> that I can't tell exactly if you're channeling somebody in particular, or this is just a side of you that recurrently comes out.
1: Oh, I think it's just a side of me that is real. Mm-hmm. If you're a writer of any sort, you get really good at eavesdropping, is how you learn how people talk. And you listen to the way people say things, phrases that are used, and I have lived in the South for way most of my life, all but the first 18 years. And it's my home, you know, I'm not native to here, but it's, you know, they're gonna bury me in the red clay of Georgia here someplace. The two things when I write, the two things I have to determine before the cogs start to mesh, is number one, what is the story? And number two, what is the voice? And in this story, I felt it had to be the voice of the guy who was determined to atone. He was saying, I was young and stupid, sure and hard back then. The only lens I looked through was the color of my skin. And how he was obviously an older man, he's out of prison, and he's realizing that that's not enough to atone because he has the wisdom of age and experience now. So no, I wasn't channeling anybody in particular. I don't know who would do a story like this in modern country music. Maybe Jason Isbell, who seems to be a pretty aware kind of guy.
2: More just kind of picturing, like, what if Johnny Cash sung this kind of song? Like, that was kind of a, if you were imaginatively combining something or other. But it sounds like, no, this is just a...
1: I wasn't, but I can see Johnny Cash singing this song, absolutely.
2: I mean, there's certain phrases in here guided by my greedance, I was unschooled, that sound more like, no, it's you, the writer, the analyst, you know, describing this rather than these are actually the words that this person would use. Is that
1: intentional or? No, I I liked guided by my grievance. Unschool is absolutely a way that a Southern guy would talk. But, you know, guided by my grievance, it's sort of like, who was it? It's one of my favorite quotes. I think it was Sheldon Leonard said, If it sounds like writing, rewrite it. I like the alliteration.
2: Do you have any sort of comments on, so this is all just you layering yourself, right? Fundamentally, I mean, is it sort of across the board that it has to sustain itself as a song, you know, in a live setting? So it's just you on acoustic and voice is the heart of this and everything else is sort of gravy.
1: When I did Cabin Fever, it was what it was. It was, you know, it was a quarantine album. And so it was just me and an instrument. No overdubs, no... Other musicians. This, however, I brought in some of the people that I normally record with. And believe me, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a time consuming, far more expensive than I imagined process of everybody being in their own little studio and sort of funneling everything back and forth through the engineer who did all the mixing, who is the real star sonically of this album.
2: Okay. So even just the gestures. In fact, let me just insert the intro again. With that very carefully layered, you know, it's a guitar-based thing, but the piano is carrying it, and the violin joins you for the last time through. Tires
1: crash.
2: I would be surprised if something that choreographed sounded was a matter of you passing it to a piano player over the internet and having them give you back exactly that.
1: In some respects, that actually is kind of what happened. This is why God created a mute button. You can say, okay, I'm going to take (laughs) the fiddle out until the very end. These are people who I have worked with for years and years and years, and I work with them Not only because they're fantastic musicians, but because they really invest themselves in the story that's being told. A lot of times when you go into a studio, you show up with, you know, sheet music, the parts you want someone to play and you say, here, play this. And they do, and they do it beautifully with these guys. They're getting these songs in the rawest possible. Hey, I just wrote a new song today. Here's a demo. Mm -hmm. And then we, in purely 2021 fashion, we get on a zoom call. And the four of us and the engineer all say, okay, how do we want to approach this song? And we work it out from there. I give them complete, I don't give anybody a chart. I don't say, I want you to do this at this point. And that's unusual for these guys because they're studio horses and they love having the opportunity for somebody to say, you're my friend, you're my partner in this Show me what you got. Show me what you think about this. And I mean, to have studio guys who want me to tell them more about the story of the song, I think that's fantastic. I feel like the luckiest recording guy in the world. So yeah, I mean, a lot of this was really instinctive and people just, I'm continually astonished by these fellas, and and they are all men, coincidentally, who just know what the right thing to do is. It's why I keep working with them.
2: And so are they working with the final vocal, You know your actual final performance? Yes. So you've got all the subtleties in there. I mean, I am the worst musician
1: of this chain, but I am also the first. So I want to make sure that my part is ready to go and I'm not going to be changing words. I'm not going to be introducing a different tempo or whatever. No, I have to have my part all nice and clean before
2: they get it. And any sort of... You know, are these generally first takes, second takes? There's a lot of subtleties in terms of like, okay, now I'm going to just let me on a one way track, you know, that I'm just going to speak the one word track that I could see like trying different things of where you should break out of the melody into the more spoken word thing or, you know, because it is a story, you could talk through a lot of this, but you know, you're erring on the side mostly of not doing so.
1: right. Right. By the time I have gotten to record all these songs, I have sat with them for a a good long time. Mm -hmm. One of the things I do is when I walk my dog, I'll listen to songs that are in the hopper. This is when I do an awful lot of rewriting. When I'm walking my dog, I'll say, "Oh no, no, that melody should go up there," or "This feels like you know for emphasis, you might want to speak it." So you know, I have done a lot of experimentation before I finally. Put down my final thing that I'm going to do.
2: And this is something that has come up for me recently is pitch correction is readily available, but yet some of the quavering that should be there sort of gets scrunched and probably nobody else, but somebody like me who's, you know, recorded a folky sort of album that has had pitch correction applied would probably notice. But is this the kind of thing that you, you know, might what is your level of interaction with the mixing guy? It's You're sort of, he's the master, just let him finish it. You're done once the song is written.
1: He and I co-produce these things. It's how we work. He's got the thing that makes him a great engineer in that he's got great ears. And again, we've worked together for so many years. He really knows my stuff. And mm-hmm. he also completely invests in the songs, like the musicians that are all playing. I mean, I really feel like it's a united front that's attacking these stories. I feel really blessed in that way. If I could control my vibrato the way I wanted to, I feel a little bit like all those years I used to poo-poo Pete Seeger when he would say, I can't sing anymore. And really what he had was uncontrollable vibrato, Mm. which bugged him. I haven't gotten quite there yet, but then again, I'm not 94 if it's a really good performance and I'm a little bit flat, you know, we'll talk about it. Sometimes, you know, you know, you want to keep it real and human, but you don't want, again, you don't want to take the listener out of the spell that hopefully you're creating. So if it's something that's, that ends up being a pebble in the shoe, yeah. Okay. Tweak it up a little bit or, you know, flatten it out a little bit.
2: Let me just zoom in on a couple of little moments. So about, 59 seconds in, there's a one harmonic <laughs> note on guitar. just uh, I'll hear I'll insert a good version of this. What at last occurred? Better. That was it. What at last occurred? Bing Which I'm, I'm just wondering, like that gesture, I didn't even notice that at first.
1: You know, I have done songs where harmonics were a part of the arrangement. No, I guess I was just uh, playing over my head. Huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Something like that usually calls itself out, you know, if, if we're going to do that kind of gesture, like, well, let's make it a Christmassy little ding, you know, as opposed to just something that is very much a passing tone until the next part. So I thought that was interesting.
1: Oh, and that might have been the case. Mm-hmm. It wasn't intentional.
2: I guess also near the end, how we establish the building crew arrived that somehow, even though this has been sort of a mournful thing, we have to wrap it up.
1: He finished just about the time the building crew arrived.
2: I guess it's just we get that really low piano hit there, which also is a thing that could have been much more dramatic and hyped up, you know, just to round it out. And we don't want to make it, Syrupy or anything, but it just has to settle in to something that makes it sound like this is a good ending.
1: Well, and it's a little bit of a surprise because people don't know how it's going to end. There was a a film I saw which helped direct the arc of this story. Before Liam Neeson decided he wanted to be an action hero, I was visiting my youngest stepdaughter who was going to Trinity College in Dublin. And my wife and I had arrived in Dublin, and as you do when you're traveling from the United States over to Europe, you arrive at a time when you you know you have to stay awake as long as you can. So we're sitting in our hotel room fighting sleep, and we decided to watch a movie. And there was a movie called, I think it's Five Minutes in Heaven or 30 Minutes in Heaven or something like that. And it's about an IRA terrorist, played by Liam Neeson, who decides to go and apologize to the families of people that he had murdered in his terrorist past. One of the most important lines to me in the song is, I let him have his peace. This is what this character in this film did. You don't get defensive. You pay attention to it because you are coming at some kind of atonement, some kind of apology. And to really apologize, you have to except the response of the people to whom you're apologizing.
2: Well, I thought that was interesting that you chose not to quote other than he hadn't gotten satisfaction when when he heard that I've been caught. So there's a little bit of something of the gist of part of what was said. But for the most part, you just leave that as a space for the listener to imagine sort of what the lengthy speech was and how it might have been delivered, you know, that you're sticking to the viewpoint of the listener here.
1: And one of the things I think I try to do is make my listeners engage in the story and don't give them all the answers and let them have some space to fill in those blanks on their own.
2: Let's stop and talk about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. You can learn about business strategy and leadership from Bob Iger. Conservation from Jane Goodall. Investigative journalism from Bob Woodward. Campaign strategy and messaging from David Axelrod and Karl Rove. There's cooking and fashion and wellness. And over a dozen music courses by people too famous to be on my podcast, including a new one by Ringo Starr, teaching drumming and creative collaboration. You probably know I'm a fan of philosophy, and this time I spent time with the new class Cornell West teaches philosophy. You may just know him as the uh, racial activist who criticized Obama for not doing enough, but he is a major figure in the field, very knowledgeable, wonderful speaker, particularly a big name in the particularly American form of philosophy pragmatism, I encourage you just to even go to the page for that course, check out the sample of him talking about Socrates and how Socrates wasn't really a full person because he never cried. Browsing around Masterclass is always going to help your overall cultural literacy. This is a guy you know about. Like all Masterclasses, this is going to be beautifully shot, wonderfully edited, super engaging. You can do it as video, as audio. There's going to be show notes, an opportunity to talk to other people who are experiencing the same course. In this holiday, you can give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash examined today. That's masterclass.com slash examined. Terms apply. I also want to tell you about Amazon Music. I'm almost certain you use Amazon in some way or other. And as a music fan, you probably use some kind of streaming service. And you certainly listen to podcasts. So give Amazon Music a chance to put you in touch with more than 10 million free podcast episodes. And Amazon has deals with some of these podcasters. You can listen to the hilarious podcast Smart Less one week before everyone else and ad-free on Amazon Music. And the breathtaking true crime podcast Dr. Death Miracle Man is available two weeks early on Amazon Music. Those are, of course, just some examples. And Amazon Music isn't just for listening to podcasts. They have thousands of music stations and top playlists to stream for free. And no matter what you're listening to, you can go hands-free with Alexa. Now, if you're like me and you want your music on demand and ad-free... You have to try Amazon Music Unlimited, which gives you unlimited access to over 75 million songs, as well as podcast music videos and more. With Amazon Music Unlimited, you can listen to any song anywhere offline with unlimited skips. So, super convenient. It's nice to have the tunes and the podcasts in one place. Alexa is a great feature you should look into if you haven't used it. If you've just been getting your streaming music off of YouTube or something, don't do that. This is going to be a much less clunky solution for you. And best of all, it is completely risk-free. If you've never tried Amazon Music Unlimited, now is a great time. For a limited time, new customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free for three months. With no credit card required, just go to Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. That's Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. That's Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. To try Amazon Music Unlimited free for three months, Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. Renews automatically. Cancel any time. Terms apply. Let's get the second song out there. We want to jump back in time quite a bit. There's, of course, lots of trends and projects and things that we're skipping, but I wanted to make sure, since your Grammy nominations are for these children's albums, largely, <laughs> and you had picked from uh, Winter Songs 1995, one of the ones that you gave me as an option was Soup, which uh, mm-hmm. certainly not only this album, but even some of the, you know, the more original adult music around this time, I see you're using something like a rock band. And this in particular has like, this could be Mark Knopfler playing guitar with you. Uh, you know, <laughs> some more things that are outside the traditional folk palette. Can you say a little about your approach to this? I, I guess we should just sort of introduce. I had read online that, you know, you felt like when you started doing children's music, which was what, 12 years or so before this song, that you felt like a lot of traditional children's music was condescending. Can you say a little about your approach to children's music in general before we get here?
1: Yeah, back in 1983, I did my very first what I call a family album. Mm -hmm. But I was a new father and I wanted to make an album for my eldest child, my son, for his first birthday. Like a lot of people who are trying to you know, scrape by playing music professionally, I was playing wherever I could. And one of the places that I played first and often was in elementary schools. And boy, you really learn how to perform when you're doing six 45-minute assembly programs in one of these big consolidated schools for people who did not ask to see you. And the only thing you have going for you is that the alternative is math class. So I played a lot for Kids and families, and you know, you're on the road, you're trying to make a couple extra bucks. And so they'll say, well, you have an evening show. Would you be willing to do a kids show in the afternoon? And you just learn how to do that kind of stuff. So I was a typical first time dad. I was nuts for my kid and I wanted to do something. So I decided to make him an, an album because it's what I did. And having no experience in what was out there, I went out and just bought a whole bunch of what people told me were their favorite kids albums. And it was it was a lot of Disney and Sesame Street. And there wasn't much. 1983, and I recorded it in 82, there was no Rafi yet in the United States. You know, the whole Canadian children's music stuff had not yet crossed the border. And there was Pete Seeger at Town Hall, and there were some Woody Guthrie albums. But basically, all the other stuff was done on emulators with synthesized instruments. And even when I went to Rounder, and this was my first album for Rounder, they said, oh, good, a kid's album. You know, the budget's just cut in half. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. (laughs) This is the dad talking now. We should spend twice as much on an album for kids. And thinking that it would probably be my only album for kids, I did Cajun stuff and bluegrass stuff and rock and roll and everything. It was just music for the family. Plus, I wanted it to be the album that would, you know, solve the argument on the way to the beach or the mountains for the summer vacation of what the parents and the kids were going to listen to that each could not only stand, but enjoy. I wanted to make a kid's album that didn't sound like a kid's album. Plus, I really wanted it to be all live musicians. And I didn't want to use funny voices and, you know, just I wanted the music to breathe and mean something to the kids. Little did I know that it it was really kind of the first in a wave of, you know, Kathy Fink and Marcy Marcer came later. Tom Chapin came later. Dan Zanes came much later. People who were really doing interesting, very musical and very nutritious music for kids and families. When Rounder came to me five years after How'd You Do came out, they said, you know, this is the best selling kids record. In the country for years and years and years why don't you do another one and i went oh i didn't know because you do these things and you sent them out into the world like on their little cultish legs and then even right now talking about bucket list even though it only came out less than a month ago i'm halfway into another album it's like people who make movies who two years after they've done the shoot have to go out and promote it so i had no idea that this was
2: had any kind of legs well, there's not a top 40 kids radio station parroting it back to you, making you listen to it in uh, public places.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so it was complete and pleasant news, though people did start showing up at my shows. I remember doing a, a show, a double bill with Beausoleil in Boston. And the promoter came back and said, God, there's just a ton of kids out here. What's going on? And it would right after How'd You Do it would come out. And so, of course, I got together with Beausoleil and we did Rubber Blubber Whale or something. By the time. I decided to do a four seasons cycle because I'm a lover of classical music. And of all these four seasons, it was always a, a favorite of mine. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to have four different albums, one that each dealt with the seasons? And I got together with my longtime best friend, Cy Khan, and we decided to write together. And we didn't know if we could write together, but guys have to invent a reason to hang out. And really what we wanted to do was hang out. And it was a great surprise to find that we could actually write really well together. All of Winter Songs was written in a day and a half, believe it or not. We were completely on a roll. I knew I was going to do 12 songs. Each of the four seasons has 12 songs. And with Soup, I wanted to do something that was sensory, but not just with ears or eyes. I wanted to bring taste. I wanted to bring smell into it. And I wanted to bring memory in it as well, because the song goes from the perspective of the kid to the perspective of a parent pretty seamlessly. And so you don't know, does it change focus and it happens so smoothly I didn't recognize it? Or is is this adult at the end, the kid in the beginning? And it talks about four different generations because you got the kid, you got the dad, you got the grandmother. That's just 3, I guess. <laughs> I'm too used to being well, a Well, if you're imagining the the audience being the uh, the uh four. That's another generation, right. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you for that lifeline. Soup was one of those songs that just fell out as quickly as we could write it. You know, the story was obvious to us, and again, we wanted I had just played a show at the Washington School for the Deaf and Blind, like weeks before we wrote this album. And I came in knowing, oh, okay, we've got to start employing other senses, because I've just been in a situation where so much of my imagery is visual imagery, and there's other ways to deal with it. So I love this song. Get off the bus and I can see my breath The air's so cold that you could freeze to death I turn up my collar and the wind starts to blow and the sky turns gray and it begins to snow I Put down my head, it's only two blocks more I make it to my house and then I open the door <sighs> Smells like winter in our house It smells like winter in our house it smells like winter in our house It smells like soup, soup Soup, soup When my dad was a kid in my grandma's home She taught him how to start with the old soup bone. You put the water, carrots, celery and onions in the pot It only takes a little of whatever you got There ain't no way a hurry and my grandma would remind me Anything worth waiting for is gonna take time (sighs) Smells like winter in our house It Smells like winter in our house It smells like winter in our house It smells like soup, soup
0: Soup, soup
1: All day long I hear it bubbling in the pot Sneak up to the lid, be careful it's hot Lift up the corner and I take a little sniff And then I close my eyes and take a great big whiff I go and get a tablespoon to steal a little taste I got a big soup smile all over my face it Smells like winter at our house Smells like winter at our house It smells like winter in our house it Smells like sea like soup soup Soup. with macaroni, cream of broccoli, and minestrone, potato soup, tomato soup, chowder made of clam, pizza soup, and mushroom soup, split pea with ham, bouillon, scallion, with lemongrass, what's a ball chili bee? Cream of So status. it doesn't ever matter, let the cold winds blow, let the rivers freeze. And if there's three feet of snow from my dad and from my grandma, it's what I got. They put a whole lot of love in that old black pot. In my mind I see a little boy, a distant winter day. He's standing in my door and I can hear.
2: Smells like winter in our house.
1: It smells like winter in our house. Oh, it smells like winter in our house. It smells like smells, smells like winter in our house. It smells like winter in our house. It smells like winter in our house. Smells like winter in our house. <clears throat> it smells like winter in our house. It smells like winter in our house. Smells like bean soup, chicken soup, soup with macaroni, soup, cream of broccoli, soup, minestrone, soup, potato soup, tomato soup, chowder made of clam, miso soup. soup, and mushroom soup, split pea with ham, soup, bullion scamming, cone, guy with lamb. What's chili
2: bean be? We love us All right, so another one where clearly written to be a potential solo guitar and voice thing, but you've got the full band here kind of immersing the acoustic. Like It seems like it's a a tremendous mixing trick to keep it sticking out enough that it's audible. Was this also the same sort of, we got live instrumentals in a room, we're doing the everybody watching each other. Like Was this for the most part everybody at the same time, or was this layered a big production? Most of it was live. Okay.
1: And I think there's only one, no, none of the instrumentalists, well, Pete Kennedy played the guitar, the electric guitar, but the fellow who is now, who shortly after this session actually became my full-time bass player and my full-time keyboard player were the singers, Hmm. JT Brown and John Carroll. And it was just really, again, presenting this song and saying, what can we do with this? What feels right? And when everyone is smiling at the end of a take, one thing I've learned from my wife, who's a children's book author, is to never let go of the fact that you want this to be accessible to kids. You want this to be fun for them. And, you know, just the word, ah. Yeah. It feels so great to say that. You conjure up all the ways in which you might be prompted to say, ah. Whenever I've done my kids slash family albums, I've always kept in mind that who the audience is. And that's really what has guided me all along the way. A song is a conversation between the writer and the listener. And in fact, one of the things I always tell my songwriting students is a song is not finished until someone has heard it and you know whether it works or not. So with, with family music, it's always, you know, you imagine kids and, and adults in a car or, you know, at bedtime, any of those times when you just stop. And as an adult and a child, you do something together. To have this be the catalyst of it is the greatest thing that no matter what kind of work you do, you want to be useful. And I've always thought, I want my songs to be useful. I want them to be used as well.
2: Well, it's interesting that you felt like, you know, that five minutes was not going to be too lengthy for little kids' attention spans, you know, that you're, like any sort of rock and roll song, you're letting there be a little bit of, not a full-on guitar solo, but, you know, some riffage mm-hmm. at the end, uh, even a little bass run, you know, let the bass have a little solo there for for a couple bars there, and just, you know, letting it, the fact that this cream of broccoli minestrone potato soup, this sort of thing that sounds like. It's the bridge that you're like, oh, no, that, that can also come in at the end that we can just you've set up an, an atmosphere that you feel like is going to be comfortable enough that it's not just like everybody's singing along, you know, that sort of traditional kids song. It has to be anthemic and probably wrap up. You know, you can't make like baby beluga. You can't make that five minutes long.
1: You know, ultimately, music should be fun and it should be a place that you can lose yourself, even if it's only for three to five minutes. This is a really kind of loping, easygoing, sort of lay back in the pocket kind of song. It's hasn't got a screaming guitar solo. You can imagine Jimmy Buffett doing this song. I mean, we just played until it felt like it was time to go. And sort of like watching the trailer of a movie and they have, you know, edited in some outtakes that make it really fun. You know, you want to have little little breadcrumbs all the way along so that someone can go oh and uh, mom can say oh that's that donovan song first there is a mountain then there is no mountain then there is so you have little tidbits that are fun things jokes almost
2: yeah well having a a 50s blues thing you know that that what i was calling the bridge that we're gonna just invite that into this the middle of this song
1: Yeah, and, you know, my kids are teenagers by the time we do winter songs, and they have as much knowledge, well, they have as much experience in my CD collection by that time as I do, you know, so they're hearing all kinds of stuff, so being able to have some stuff that is, that are fun little surprises and inside jokes between the musicians and the listeners, that's what... Playing music is is about. Now I've often said that the concert stage and the recording studio are really two different worlds for me. I'm able to you know expand my palette in the recording studio. This song is an example of that, but it can still live on a concert stage. And hopefully, the kids aren't saying, "Oh gosh, I wish that guitar was there," because they're still hearing. Mm-hmm. still got that seductive little riff in there that they'll recognize and anchors the whole thing.
2: Oh, yeah. It seems almost out of place to say, I strongly prefer <laughs> that pure sound, but that's just the folk thing coming out. Listen, I know,
1: and what made these albums, and I did eight of them in total, successful was that I wasn't just depending on the folk music world sure, for these. And you know, there was enough representation that I think families and kids who might not have heard any folk music at all were saying, oh, here's a new John McCutcheon album. Oh, well, this isn't anything like that, but that's pretty cool. For me, it's just expanding my palette in the studio. It's fun. I still want to be able to do these things live. And this is one of them that can do that.
2: So maybe as a way to transition to the third song, Water From Another Time, from Gonna Rise Again, 1987. Which is a similar in certain ways to soup, right? It is has a, an earnest nostalgia to it. There's nothing snarky. A, a lot of your stuff has, you know, you've you've got caustic social commentary. These songs are are very much not jokey. They're just straightforwardly here is the beauty of some past experience and how it is handed down. Something like that.
1: Well, this is a song that I wrote for my youngest son on the day he was born, and I was raised the eldest of nine children by someone who was the youngest of twelve in her generation. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up who lived a hundred miles away from where we lived. And so when I was far too young to be able to ride a train alone, my mother would put me on a train alone to relieve her of one of her nine loudmouth kids. And I would go and spend this time with my grandparents who were very elderly. And I knew that my kids would they would only exist to my children in you know as interesting little stories and boring stories of the good old days and i didn't want my kids to miss out on how powerful an experience that was for me and how powerful the kind of intergenerational interplay is so that's where this song came from it was i i literally wrote it for my son peter on the day he was born Hence, the first verse talks about being on my grandparents' farm. The second verse talks about dreaming about that, and it ends up with a newborn cry. So it ties those generations together. And when you write a song, you don't know really what's going to happen to it. You may think you know what the song is about, but there's another person involved in this conversation, and that's the listener. So this song, and I think it's probably the old ways help the new ways come and save a little water from another time. This was based actually on a primitive painting that my friend Dylan Buston, who for many years was the state folklorist of Massachusetts, told me about an Indiana traditional artist who would paint pictures and then write little poems And the poem was, don't spend your money all in one lump. Just remember the old town pump that every day had to be primed with water from another time. And that's where the whole phrase came from, was this poem on a primitive painting by this woman from Indiana. You know, so a lot of environmental groups have actually used this song. And I never intended it to be that. This was just a song I wrote for my kid. sunburned nose and a scabbed up knee from a rope at the white oak tree just another summer's day at grandpa's farm with grandma's bucket hanging off you know the old pump's rusty but it works fine primed with water from another time you don't take much but you gotta have some old ways help the new ways come just leave a little extra for the next in line they're gonna need a little water from another time tattered quilt on the goose down bed every stitch tells a story my grandma said her mama's nightgown grandpa's pants and the dress she wore to her high school dad now wrapped at night in those patchwork scenes I waltz with grandma in my dreams My arms, my heart, my life entwined With water from another time You don't take much, but you gotta have some The old ways help, the new ways come Leave a little extra for the next in line They're gonna need a little water from another time And the future are wedded there in this wellspring of my sons and daughters, the bone and blood of living waters. And though Grandpa's hands have gone to dust, like Grandma's pump reduced to rust, their stories quench my soul and mind like water from another time. It don't
2: take much, but you gotta have some. The old ways help, the new ways come Just leave a little extra for the next in line They're
1: gonna need a little water from another time You don't take much, but you gotta have some The old ways help, the new ways come Just leave a little extra for the next in line
2: They're gonna need a little water from another
0: Need a
2: water from another time, so we finally got some Hammer dulcimer Yay. here <laughs> I don't want to focus on the on the eighties production, but it does open up another avenue of being bright and pretty that you've got you know the super reverb. Percussive keyboard in there, you know, sort of a synth piano kind of thing apart from actual piano. And we got guitar harmonics up the wazoo in this song, the dulcimer that really fills out that treble space. Any sort of thoughts on sort of how you were arranging back at this point?
1: This was the first album that I intentionally got a band together before it was like, how are we going to treat this song? Oh, we need a conga player. Great. Let's bring in this guy prior to this i had worked with the group trapezoid a lot my producer was paul reisler who was the guitar and the Hammer Delsmer player in the band and they were all dear dear friends of mine we performed a lot together and they felt like they could give voice to the songs i was writing and it was all completely acoustic almost never a drum set and then i was writing songs that it felt like opening up to that kind of arrangement Felt like it gave them the life I wanted to give them. You know, and I also mistakenly thought, oh, well, this will expand the audience. It almost never does. (laughs) And some of the songs just, you know, I was a kid who loved rock and roll when I was a kid. Yeah, horn section, sure. Screaming guitar solo, yeah, let's do this in this song. In recent years, I've gone back to a much more organic sound. I remember one album, which was a real turning point, when I started working with a different keyboard player and just saying, putting on the album, this is a completely synthesizer free album. <laughs> As though it we were vegan or something. But it was, it was what happened in 1986, 87 when the bunch of us got into the room. And of course, what happens in a room live and what eventually happens in a studio and in a mixing studio, especially, are two different things. And I'm proud of the songs and proud of the production and the albums and they are what they are at a given time and i feel really comfortable working with the sonic atmosphere that i'm in at the moment and it dictates the way i write in some ways
2: well i'm also curious just about how you've made your way through the the music business with these different sounds that you know if you start as a an ambassador a musicologist of folk music well that there's a certain festivals and playing libraries and things like that. And you mentioned that is comfortably adjacent to children's music, you know, these sort of functional settings of people need to be entertained as opposed to, you know, this is my original folk rock country, whatever it is. I need to develop the audience and get them to come see, you know, that you've been able to bypass, it seems like in some ways, the very difficult task of like, I could see this going to rise again, album, you said you thought this might expand the audience, that this is, seems like something, I don't know, whatever John Denver was doing at the time in terms of that market, trying to hit, you know, whatever those charts would be. Have you just been, for the most part, acting off the radar of any sort of chart or organizational recognition such that? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) I'm an encyclopedia of poor business decisions. It's an interesting question you raise because then shortly after I did uh, Winter Songs, I put out an album which was basically entirely acoustic, all traditional, Sprout Wings and Fly.
2: Well, and And a live album around that time that is also super traditional, stripped down, sounds nothing like Winter Solstice.
1: Yeah. I love traditional music too much to leave it far behind. And there was a particular time when a lot of my compatriots in this business were not even wanting to use the term folk music because they thought it limited them. Mm -hmm. And I never went that route. I am proud to be a part of a genre that is the root of all the world's music and has rendered me a non-tourist wherever I've traveled extensively in the world. I can be somewhere and recognize that part of a culture that is the traditional culture. It's like, I can't help it. I remember taking my wife on a, in a fat year, I took her to the Caribbean and went to this little island. And wouldn't you know, within 24 hours, I had found this old black fiddle player who played for quadrilles in a band that was fiddle, tambourine, double headed drum and triangle. And that was the band. And eventually I was going to parties with these guys and it was, it was like, Oh, you can't leave that behind, John. I said, yeah, no, no, this is my life. This is what interests me. Even if I wasn't a professional musician, you know, when you could see me, Mark here, you know, I'm standing in front of a wall in, on which there are all kinds of instruments from all over the world. So I, I never thought that I wasn't a folk singer. Mm-hmm. No matter, this song could have a horn section. It could have a screaming guitar solo. It could have backup singers. But it was just what happened in the studio the song itself is still trying to tell a story, trying to have a point. And in that way, I couldn't stop writing folk songs, really, no matter how you dressed them up.
2: Well, and we could have picked a better song than Water From Another Time to very vividly describe why folk music, why this connection to the past is important to you. I mean, that you're spelling it out. The wellspring of my sons and daughters, the bone and blood of living waters. And I get the feeling that a lot of my peers who like Ethnic musics of various sort that it's sort of a, and, and I live in Wisconsin. So, you know, it's not like I'm in the deep South where, but there's a, a certain love in a certain demographic of banjo music and, you know, things because it's sort of a, I think an exotic other, you know, but this is something that no, you have, you're so, you have immersed yourself as you started saying here, you know, you've made the South into your home, you know, very literally that this might have started as some sort of, I don't know, was that the very start of the attraction of, you know, this is not the kind of thing that I'm hearing on the radio and that mainstream culture is picking at me, that this is something that you are discovering on your own. But then as you grow and become a purveyor of that, then it really sinks into you and becomes like your home music. Or given that you're talking about being on a farm, like, was your exposure as a young person to uh, traditional music, you know, you sort of more organic than uh, merely uh curiosity of a young person?
1: You know, as I'm sure you know, I was raised in Wisconsin, and my first exposure to folk music was via the, the folk music revival. I didn't even know it existed. My mother made me sit down and watch the March on Washington when I was 11 years old. And it was just a social phenomenon. And it was signaled that by the fact that it was, one of, it was the first thing that was broadcast on every channel live. And of course, there were only three back then. And so my mom made me sit down and watch. And here was, you know, 200,000 people, more people than I imagined lived in the world. Uh, and then there was this preaching like I never heard in our church on Sunday. And then there was this music, everything from Mahalia Jackson to Marian Anderson. And then out came Bob Dylan and, and Odetta and Peter Paul and Mary and John Baez. And I said, what is this? And my mother said, oh, those are folk singers. And that was the first time I ever heard that word. So my exposure was through... The revival and growing up, I had no idea that Hardanger music was folk music. I had no idea that polka music was folk music. Mm-hmm. I listened to the faint echoes of the folk music revival because it was not very prevalent. You know, it was all in New York, it was all in Boston. And the stuff that really appealed to me was like Woody Guthrie, it was much more earthy and organic. And from him, Clarence Ashley and Roscoe Holcomb didn't seem weird. And so I went south because I believed, like most young people in America, that the only place real, authentic, grassroots folk music existed was in the south, especially in the Appalachian region. And little did I know that the college I went to, St. John's over in Minnesota, the year after I left on this odyssey, started a fiddle contest and they would hire me to come back up and do a show as part of it and host these guys that if I had known that they existed, I may never have gone south. So it was like you often discover who you are via the third person perspective. So I had to come back to the Midwest to realize that some a lot of the stuff I had grown up with and that really resonated with me was in fact folk music. It wasn't a one size fits all. It wasn't just Doc Watson. It wasn't just Gene Ritchie. It wasn't just Roscoe Holcomb. It was all this stuff which is what opened my eyes. And and one of the reasons I stayed in the South was I became so immersed in the ways in which music worked in communities. You know, I thought I was coming down to learn how to play the banjo, put a finger on a string at the proper time. But I was in a place where the music was instrumental rather than ornamental to daily life. And I was constantly, you know, my quests to learn the banjo were constantly being interrupted by, oh, I got to go play in church now. Or, oh, I got to go to play down on the picket line. Or I got to go play for a pie supper. We're trying to raise money to have a health clinic in our community. And it was music and art getting its hands dirty. And that's what appealed to me. That became the focus of my study. And so hence, going back to how we started off this entire conversation, telling stories and giving voice to people that are not me, creating hopefully some measure of empathy, which is the point of fiction, isn't it? That became what really attracted and interested and involved me starting 50 years ago now.
2: Well, let's wrap this up by just introducing a last song that I think speaks to your membership in this folk community. The Night John Prine Died was the one I had suggested (laughs) from Cabin Fever. Songs from Quarantine 2020, as you said, these were just You know, you and a guitar. It's you know a very classic sort of melody, and addresses in a very literal way your love for this form and your relation, you know, personal relationships with some of the people in it. Can you say some introductory words before we send you off here to this song?
1: Well, this was the last song I wrote for Cabin Fever. I thought I was done, and then I got word that John had died, and I, you know, he wrote a lot of the imagery, especially in the chorus. But John and I had done shows together over the years and the, and the middle verse talking about taking over the bandstand at a bar in Cambridge. That was not Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was Cambridge, England. We were both at the Cambridge Folk Festival and all the musicians had gathered in the bar of the, of the hotel. And the band took a break and we just started singing songs and shut the joint down and. Albanetta, who was uh, John's manager, was also Stevie Goodman's manager, reminded us all that this was the anniversary this particular date was the anniversary of Stevie's death and so we started singing some Stevie songs and it was whenever I would run into or talk to John on the phone after that, he would always reminisce about that night so when I wrote this particular song, I thought in his honor in our honor and Stevie's honor, I'd include that story as part of the song so John was a lovely guy, you know, a deceptively complex and fabulous songwriter. But that's not as important as, as the way that he was able to touch us uh, and introduce us to people that would otherwise be invisible. That was his great gift.
2: Well, thanks so much for sharing a little of the stories, the perspective, the techniques here. Really appreciate it. Sure, sure. And uh, it's, it's been
1: really interesting talking to you with such a learned ear and a, and an observant. Tennessee. So thanks for, for pushing the bounds there.
2: Awesome. All right. Here's the night John Prine died.
1: In these times, each day feels like the next but just tonight my old friend Richard sent a tearful text I could feel his sorrow on the screen wondering if I'd heard the news tonight that John Prime died He seemed to pluck his songs out of thin air They told the tiny triumphs and lives filled with despair Complex in their simplicity so honest and so true Just what every writer wished that they could do There's an angel from Montgomery that's finally taken wing and a place up there called paradise where even sam stone sings all the losers lovers loners have gathered round the throne in a mighty choir to welcome john prine home I remember a night, a bar in Cambridge town The band took a break We took the stage and shut the whole place down It was Stevie Goodman's birthday Just eight years since he died We sang, drank and remembered We laughed and then we cried Just like tonight when I heard the John Primes There's an angel from Montgomery that's finally taken wing A place up there called Paradise where even Sam Stone sings All the losers, lovers, loners have gathered round the throne In a mighty choir to welcome John Prine home I'd sit here thinking about the stories we tell And the blessed few who really do Make heaven out of hell So say hello to Stevie I ain't ready for you yet In the meantime I know you'll enjoy that nine mile cigarette there's an angel from Montgomery That's finally taken wing And a place up there called Paradise Where even Sam Stone sings All the losers, lovers, loners Gathered round Rome In a mighty choir To welcome John Prine home All the losers, lovers, loners Gathered round the throne, in a mighty choir to welcome John Prime home.
2: Thanks so much to John. It's a great honor to talk to somebody so central to what American folk music is now. This is probably the first guest I've had that my father, who is 90 and lives in South Carolina, is very familiar. Remember, you can learn more about John at folkmusic.com. I've got a great lineup coming up. I have four episodes in the can. First with Chuck Prophet, then Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel, then Lily Lewis. And today I'm talking to James McMurtry. Please make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. That'll ensure you're getting all these episodes promptly. You can look that up at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or better yet, get the ad-free feed through patreon.com slash I Hope you're all doing well. Had a nice Thanksgiving. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark linton signing off.